thankful for this uh, precious opportunity and privilege God's given us to meet together here in his house. It's good to see each one of you. Most of all, we hope we have the presence of our, our Lord and Master, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I trust that you do. The house of God's a good place to bring your Bible. Uh, turn with me to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 3. The book of Nehemiah, chapter 3. As we considered an established life and established service in the Lord. Nehemiah chapter 3. Before we go further in this effort this morning, it's going to be important for us to lay just a little groundwork. We're very thankful for Brother Luke Laird's efforts last Sunday. Uh, he laid a lot of groundwork for us concerning this in a historical setting for us to understand where the children of Israel are at this time in Nehemiah chapter 3. Uh, if you remember, the Lord blessed the children of Israel. He brought them out of Egyptian bondage in the book of Exodus. They came through the wilderness, and God blessed them to go into the land of Canaan. They inhabited the land, and God blessed them to prosper and to grow as a nation, to grow in fellowship with him. Uh, God blessed them uh, to have a king named David. If you recall, they wanted a king to be like other nations, and they desired Saul of Kish. That was not God's will, and uh and they did not prosper under Saul of Kish, but the Lord blessed them to have a king named David. And then they were blessed to have kings after that. The, the kingdom ended up splitting into two parts. In the days of Rehoboam, Solomon's son, you had the ten tribes to the north, the two to the south. And God would richly bless them during times of disobedience. God would still be good to them. Uh, God would bless them during the times of obedience and the godly kings of Judah. Um, but their disobedience finally came to a, a, a boiling point, and God's long-suffering ran out with them. You know, the word long-suffering doesn't mean forever suffering. It means long-suffering, and God is very long-suffering with his children. But God's long-suffering ran out, and uh, he moved his hedge. He removed his providential hand, and it was the Babylonians that, that came. Uh, they came the first time at about 586 B.C., uh, the last time they came, they made three uh, surges at uh, Jerusalem, three efforts. And the last time they came was in about 606 B.C., and the, yeah, the entire city was, was destroyed. It was, uh, it was demolished. And um, they spent 70 years in, in Babylonian captivity. Here they were separated from the land that God had given them, from the goodness that, that they had enjoyed. And it was because of their sin wasn't because God was uh, was a mean God. No, God is good. He's He's good to all His children. He's, he's full of grace and full of mercy. It's because their sin. Their sin found them out. And during those 70 years of Babylonian captivity, they, they were pressed, they were slaves, they were bondmen uh, to the nation of Babylon. But there was a time when God's anger was, was appeased. And it was prophesied even in the book of Jeremiah that would only be 70 years. 70 years that the land rested, which I'm amazed at that there in the last chapter of Second Chronicles, that the land kept Sabbath the entire time they were in Babylonian captivity. You know, if we really consider the children of Israel, they were to give one day out of the week to the Lord to rest, and they were to give one year out of every seven years to rest, let the land rest, but they failed to do as God commanded. So God said, look, if you're not going to give it to me, I'm going to take it. And God took it. Which teaches us we really can never outsmart the Lord. 
Uh, God is greater, wiser, and better than, than all of us. And they stayed in that captivity for 70 years. Uh, the time come to an end when God's anger was appeased and they could return. They could return to Jerusalem. They could return to the land. And it was God that stirred up the heart of a Medo-Persian named Cyrus to give to the children of Israel to, uh, to assist them in their rebuilding of, of the house of God that was in the book of Ezra and rebuilding the walls that surrounded Jerusalem, which we read about here in the book of Nehemiah. They came back, and when they came back, if you recall, in, in Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2, when Nehemiah comes back, I mean, there's so much rubble, there's so much destruction. I mean, his horse couldn't even pass through. I mean, can you imagine coming to a place and there's just so much destruction that the horse you're riding on can't even pass through? And when he saw that, I mean, I'm sure he was reminded of, of their lives, how their lives were nothing but destruction because of their sin and because of their disobedience and because of them turning away from God and God's word. He gathers the people together. They pray. They ask for God's blessings, and they start laboring to rebuild the house of God and the walls of Jerusalem. And as they built these walls, they could meditate and think about their own lives and their own families and their own service to the Lord, how because of their sin and their turning away from God, it was nothing but rubble and, and destruction. But now they returned to the walls and they could meditate on this work they were doing and this fellowship they have with God. And they could see how their, their families are beginning to be reconstructed as what families should be. The house of God is being reconstructed in their lives. Their spiritual fellowship with God is being reconstructed in even their personal life as disciples of God. They can see how they're being built up and established again. And as I look at these walls and these gates, which there are ten gates to the walls of Jerusalem, I, I can see how they correlate and, and remind me of things that we, the children of God, will have to be established in if we're to have an established personal life here in this world and our fellowship with the Lord. Even our homes as mothers and fathers and children have an established life here in this world as, as a church. These ten gates, I think, teach us a lot about what we will have to be established in, things that are necessary for us to be established in if we're to have a, a consecrated life here in this, in this troubled world of, of tribulation. Now, as we consider these, these gates to these walls, I'm going to show you the verses that these gates are in. If you'll notice in verse 1, we read about the sheep gate that was being rebuilt there in the walls. Uh, verse 2 and 3, you read about the fish gate. Notice in verse 3, but the fish gate. Verse 6 is the old gate. Verse 13, we read about the valley gate that's on the walls of Jerusalem. Verse 14, the dung gate. Verse 15 is the fountain gate. Verse 26 was the water gate. Verse 28 was the horse gate. Verse 29, you read about the east gate. And then in verse 31, you read about this gate that's called Mifkad. And uh, I hope the Lord bless us to, for us to all know what Mifkad means. And then in verse 32, we come right back to the, the sheep gate. Now, if we were looking at these walls, this wall, and these gates, and we were looking from above, and and we had a compass, north, south, east, and west. They were kind of be like this. You would you'd start up here with the with the sheep gate. Then you'd have the, uh, the fish gate, the old gate, the valley gate. The dung gate would be down here at, at the far south. And you'd have the, the fountain gate. You'd come to the water gate. 
the horse gate, the east gate, and you'd come to Mithcad, and you'd come right back to the, the sheep gate. And you may be saying, Brother Ronnie, how did you know that? I, I really can't go through how I know that, but I know that's the way they're situated on those, on those walls. And here in this third chapter of the book of Nehemiah, even the way they're brought to our attention has a lot to do with what we should be focused on if we're to have an established life, an established household, even an established church. And as they rebuild these walls, let's consider these, these gates and what they mean to us as servants of the Lord in the year 2021 and having that established life and having established households, families, and having an established church as we go forward in our, in our service to the Lord. Do, do you believe it's God's will for us to have an established life in Him? Yes, it is. It is God's will for us to have our house, our personal life, built on a rock that we could withstand the storms when they come. You know, there was a tropical storm came through last night, and I was glad my house was strong enough and the trees in my yard strong enough to withstand the storm, the storm. You know, every time I think about the storms of life coming through, I think about the three little pigs. Do you remember the three little pigs? One little pig built his house, you know, out of straw and other sticks. The other is brick. And, you know, that brick house, it, it stood. It was a strong house. You know, we should be like that one pig in the storms of life. Let's be wise enough that our house should be established because the storms of life, it's not if they will come. They will come. You will have trouble in your personal life. You're going to have trouble in your household. You're going to have trouble in the church. And things bother you and trouble the church and trouble us as children of God. But how are we established to be able to withstand, to, to be standing when the, when the storm is over? You know, the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 1 and verse 11 that he longed to come unto the church at Rome. For what reason? That to this end that they would be established. The Apostle Paul desired to come to them to teach them the Word of God, that they'd be instructed and nourished in the Word of God so they'd be strong and be established to be able to withstand all the false teachers and the troubles that this world could throw at them. You know, the church at Colossae, the Colossian brothers and sisters, they faced a lot of troubles. They faced the troubles from the Judaizers. They faced troubles from the Grecian philosophers and the and all the Roman paganists, they faced those troubles. And you can read that through those four chapters of the book Colossians. But the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 7, he desired they'd be rooted and built up in him to this end that they may be established, established in the Lord to be able to withstand those troubles. I don't know if you remember the text there in uh, Psalms chapter 51 and verse 18. You know, Psalms 51 is David when... He turns to the Lord after he's sinned and he's repenting to the Lord. He knows I've sinned against God. My life is in, in rubbles. I'm, I'm crumbling. And he, he uses these words. He said, Do thou in thy good pleasure and design, build thou the walls of Jerusalem. That's an amazing text in Psalms 51 verse 18. Would you agree? I mean, it's David praying to the Lord, asking the Lord for forgiveness, asking the Lord to restore him to his fellowship, and yet that verse is right there in the end of that. Do thou in thy good pleasure unto Zion, build thou the walls to Jerusalem. David understood how his personal life would have an effect on the entire city. How his personal life was like one of the stones, one of just one portion of the wall in Jerusalem being established. And brothers and sisters, we have to keep in mind that I, as a disciple of the Lord, us and our small little households that come together to make up the church, us 
individually, us as household, we have a huge effect on the walls of even the church, the church being established. Would you agree that a pastor that's not as devoted as he should be, would would you agree it affect the church as a whole? Yes. Well, there's no difference than me and really you, you, an individual in the church, not being established. It would affect an entire church, us as adults in the church. Us not being established in the Lord, if we're given to the sins of this life, it will affect the young children in the church. And each young child can end up having an influence and effect on other children in the church. Do thou in thy good pleasure, undesigned, build thou the walls of Jerusalem. And David calling on God's grace to help him. And as we labor to have an established life in the Lord, we need God's not eternal grace. His, his eternal grace is, is done. His eternal grace has saved us from the penalty of our sin. We have a home in heaven because Jesus has come into this world and paid the penalty for our sin, satisfied the Father. Heaven is ours and no one can take it away from us. But we need God's temporal grace to help us as his children that we would have an established life, established households, an established church that God's grace, his light would be seen in us, that we could have an effect on this community and in the world that we live in. Verse 1, Nehemiah chapter 3. First gate is the sheep gate. It's up to the north. It's the sheep gate. Do you remember in John chapter 5, the, uh, the man that was impotent? He was there at the pool of Bethesda. He was there at that sheep pool, the sheep gate, this is where he was. He was right there. And remember the Lord came and the Bible said there was many impotent folk there, but Jesus only healed one. All those impotent folk, Jesus dealt with one. This man that was impotent, having no strength, he met one that was omnipotent, that had all strength. And the Lord healed him that day and he got up and he walked. That happened right here at this sheep gate. I'm amazed that the Bible starts with this. As they labor to rebuild these walls, that the walls of Jerusalem be established, it starts with the sheep gate. I don't think anything's in the Bible by accident. I don't think God threw anything in here by happenstance. I believe every mark of punctuation in the Bible is there for a reason. Now, it may be beyond my comprehension, it may be beyond my spiritual ability to interpret. My dad asked me once, Brother Ron, do you think there's a page in the Bible you understand? I said, Daddy, I don't think there's a verse in the Bible I fully understand, but I'm happy to understand what I do understand, and I'm trusting God would give me more grace that I could understand more because everything in the Bible has a purpose whether we understand it or not. It starts with the sheep gate. What do we gather from that? Who is the sheep? Have you noticed that it starts with him and ends with the sheep gate? Who is the sheep? Who is the lamb? Remember in Exodus chapter 12, we're introduced to a Passover lamb? What was this pointing us to? Paul told us. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, Christ our Passover. He is the lamb of God. He is the sheep. He's the one that made us his sheep. He is the lamb that offered himself in our room instead. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, brothers and sisters, unless we're established in him, who he is and what he done, you can throw the rest of it away. We must be established 
and who Jesus is and what he did. Otherwise, we will not be established on the right track on anything else. When we build a house, you start with a roof, right? I tell you what we do. We just get some sticks. We put up some sheathing. We nail some shingles on. And, you know, later we'll start thinking about putting on some brick and maybe then finally at the last we'll force some footers, right? Mm-mm, no, that's not what we do. No, we start with the footers. We start with the foundation. We start with what we need to begin building upon. And everything we have and everything that we believe is built upon who Jesus is and what he did. Do you realize one of the greatest attacks in this world is against who Jesus is? The world would have you believe that there's just many people that's come into this world that have set forth some amazing principles and Jesus is just one of those people. I mean, you got a man, his name is Buddha. You got a man who's Muhammad. You got another man over here. You got another man over here. You got another man over here. And they're all just blessed. And they're all the same. And, and you have a right just to choose which one you want to follow than the one that you have a desire to be a disciple of, to be disciplined in their teaching. Hey, that sounds real good when you're just in the shop talking, right? But it's not true. See, the Lord Jesus Christ is not just a good man that said some good things. Yes, I will agree, he's a good man, and he said some good things. Matter of fact, everything he said was good. Whether it rubbed them good or not, it was good, and it was beneficial. He's not just a good man, and not just someone that said some good things. Mm -mm. Jesus, we must be established in this, right from the get-go, that Jesus is God manifested in perfect humanity. You would be amazed at how many people under the umbrella, and this is a word you rarely hear me use in the pulpit. And the reason I rarely use it in the pulpit, it's only found three times in the Bible, and people take it way out of context when they use it. Under the umbrella of Christianity, under the umbrella of Christianity, you would be surprised and how many people really grasp this point of who Jesus is? Jesus is God manifested in perfect humanity. Jesus is not just a man that was born of a woman and a man. No, he is God conceived of the Holy Spirit that was born of a virgin that never knew a man walked on this earth, manifest himself as God, did things that no man could do, said things that no man could say, gave revelation of heaven above that no man could do. He is God. John, we read a verse in John chapter 7, when there was two soldiers that come to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ, they came back without him and they said this, never man spake like this man. Did you notice that language? It didn't say never a man spake like this man. You know, I was corrected on that when I was a young preacher. I got in the pulpit and I said, never a man. I quote it. I want to tell you, my father's in the ministry. Whoa, boy, I mean, as soon as I got done, they had to talk with me. 
He said, Brother Ron, that's not what that text says. That text does not say never a man. Mm -mm. You can have a man say things that another man never said. You can say never a man. It doesn't say never a man. Mm -mm. And I had someone ask me, well, what does it say in the Greek? It says the same in the Greek as it does in English. I've read it. Never man spake like this man. There has never been a man, never man, never, there will never be man that spake like Jesus spake. You know why? He is God manifested in perfect humanity. Never man did things that Jesus did. You know, you find miracles throughout the Gospels that Jesus did, and it caused people to be convinced this is not just a man. Because never man could do these things. You remember the woman of Samaria? Jesus told her all things she ever did. She went back home and said, is this not the very Christ? He told me all about my life and I never met him before. You know why? The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. John chapter 11, you had one that was dead four days. And they said, by this time, he stinketh. Yeah, he stinketh. He's been dead four days. And Jesus said, move the stone. Why did Jesus say, move the stone? Oh, he has to move the stone so he can let Lazarus out. No, he didn't need to move the stone and let Lazarus out. Mm -mm. He got to move the stone so they can smell the stink of death. Boy, they smelled it. And they know that man is dead. He's been dead four days. And Jesus called. You know what happened to that man? He came out alive. How did he come out alive? By the power of God. You know what the Pharisees wanted to do? They wanted to kill Lazarus. We've got to kill him. Why? Because he, this man alive, is evidence that Jesus is not just a man. He's done things that never man could do, and which really shows the ignorance of man. I mean, if Jesus raised him from the dead one time, don't you think he's got enough power to do it again? <laughs> I mean, man is so ignorant. They think, well, we can destroy this evidence here and there'll never be any more. No, if he could raise him one time from the dead, he could raise him again. We must be established. If our life is to be established, if our households are to be established in our service to the Lord, if the church is to be established, that's the first and foremost thing we must be built upon, that Jesus is God. And that's going to be attacked more so and more so and more so as we go forward. And this world is not going to get better. I'm 52 years old. I'm amazed at the things that I see in the world today. Some of you are, mu are much older. I didn't say any of you are old. I said much older than me, which I used to say that real, real easily. 52, I can't say much. Now, some of you are older than me. How does the world appear to you now compared to when you were a teenager? Worse. And my son, he's 15. I can think back when he was just a child. And the world today and how worse it's gotten? I mean, I'm amazed at this. It's not going to get better. Paul said evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. Not only is it going to get worse, they're going to be more skilled in how they present their words to convince the minds of people that it's the right way. And willing to debate it and say, well, well, I'll tell you what, science has said this. Science, what kind of science? Who's science? You know, the Apostle Paul told Timothy there's things in this world called science falsely so-called. They call it science, but it's not science. It's science falsely so-called. And these individuals, they're so skilled, they're arguing, their main point of argument is going to be this. Disprove Jesus is God. If Jesus is not God, you know what, this book, it doesn't matter. 
Doesn't matter. The church? Doesn't matter. Jesus is not God. You lose it all if we lose this point that Jesus is God. I can tell you something else. We lose a lot if we don't hold on to what Jesus did. When Jesus came into the world, he didn't come into the world to give man an opportunity to become a child of God. He didn't give us an opportunity to be redeemable. He didn't come into this world to make us reconcilable. That's not even a word. He didn't come into this world to make us ransomable. Again, not even a word. But the world would teach us that Jesus, who's just a good man, he came into this world to give us an opportunity that we could become redeemable, that we could become reconcilable, that we could come become ransomable. Again, not even words. It's amazing how what people teach ends up not even being good English, right? Jesus came into this world not to make us redeemable, not to make us reconcilable, not to make us ransomable. Jesus came into this world and he redeemed us. He reconciled us to God. He has ransomed us from hell with his blood. The Lord is victorious. And if we are built on that, do you realize how that increases our faith in just the normal, everyday ins and outs of life? Think about it. If the Lord is not able to save me unless I'll let him, how is he able to help me in my troubles? You got me? The Apostle Paul used these words when he spoke to Timothy concerning the Lord's help and the Holy Spirit that dwelled in him, reminding Timothy by the same power that has saved us from hell against our will by his power alone, by that same power we're able to be helped in our everyday lives. No wonder people's faith is being destroyed in this world. No wonder people don't have confidence in God. They're teaching a less than God with the words of their mouth. Brothers and sisters, I'm not here to tell you about a less than God. I'm talking about a great God. A God that saved us from our sins, that saved us from hell, that came into this world mighty to save, that got the job done, that's sitting on the right hand of the Father, and the God that's able to do that, I don't have a problem that's too big that he can't help me with. Being established, can you see being established in that? How it establishes us in, in our lives. The next gate you run into, verse 3, in the chapter is the fish gate. Once we're established in who the Lord is and what he did, we need to be established in what our purpose is, the fish gate. When I think about the fish gate, I think about the Lord when he called Peter and Andrew, brothers. You remember there in Matthew chapter 4, they were casting their net. They were fishermen. And then you had James and John. They were also fishermen. They were mending their debt. And Jesus said to them, what did he say to them? Come and I will make you fishers of men. Fishers of men. Fish gate. We, the children of God, have an established life. need to understand what our purpose is as disciples of the Lord. What our purpose is concerning the world. See, my purpose as a minister of the gospel is not to populate heaven. If that's my purpose, to populate heaven, what kind of hypocrite am I to take a week off and go stick my toes in the sand at the beach? I asked a man once he was going to do that. He believed his purpose in life was to populate heaven. I said, do you understand what a hypocrite you are and how ungodly you are to go down to the beach and stick your toes in the sand when there's multitudes you could be saving, not just from temporal trouble, but from eternal hell? Think about it, brothers and sisters. I'm going to tell you, common sense will lead to an established life. Common sense. 
What kind of hypocrite would I be if I'm out here at the beach with my toes in the sand when my purpose is to save people from an eternal hell and I'm down there and they, it's not going to be they're going to have a sickness in their life and have to go to a doctor. No, they're going to be in hell eternally. If that's my purpose in life and that's what I'm supposed to do, I shouldn't even sleep at night. I shouldn't take vacations. I certainly shouldn't do anything for myself. I shouldn't be on my bicycle out here riding during the week. I shouldn't be taking my son fishing at the lake. I mean, I should be like, oh my goodness, I, if that's my purpose, I need to spend every millisecond of my life trying to save people from an eternal burning hell. But that's not what God has called us to do as his children. Mm-mm. We need to understand about something about fishing. I took Joshua fishing this week. He and I went down here to Lake Twitty. We caught some catfish. You know, we wouldn't fish it for dead fish. You know, I didn't catch a dead fish. Every fish I caught was alive. Every fish I caught, I put the bait on that I thought would be good for him, and I caught him, and he was a live fish. You know, as a minister of the gospel, I'm not here fishing for dead fish. Someone that's dead in sins, I can't help them. That's God's business, not mine. But I'll tell you what I am doing. I'm fishing for live fish, and I want to see those fish, forgive me for my language, to enjoy this great pond that God has blessed us to have. <laughs> I like to see good fish in good ponds, don't you? I'm going to tell you, there ain't no better pond, and I understand that's not good English, but it's just good preaching. There ain't no better pond than here in the house of God. And I'm fishing for the children of God to help them to enjoy a better life here in this world. And being established in that, you know what? It helps me sleep better at night. It gives me rest. It gives me motivation. It encourages me to do more because I understand what my purpose is. Notice in verse 6, the next gate you run into is the old gate. That old gate down there, it's the old gate. So tell how long it's been there. Something we need to be established in is just the old way of God. And the Bible teaches us to stand in the ways and see. And ask for the old past. Where it is the good way? And walk therein. And you shall find rest for your souls. The old way of God. The old way. You know why it's the old way? It was given to us by an eternal God. The old way. And I want to tell you, understanding the old way will have you an established life, and have you established household, and have an established, established church. You know who knows how to make a marriage work? God does. God is the one that created Adam. God is the one that gave Eve to Adam. God knows how to make a marriage work. You want to make your marriage work? Look at the old way, the way that God gave. You know how to make a life work? God's the one that made us alive. God's eternal life. God knows. God knows. Raising children. You want to know how to raise children? Ask someone that knows about raising children. God knows how. He's got more children than anybody. God knows all about raising children. I, I love that Psalms 127 when David teaches us about children and them being a heritage of the Lord. It's like heirs in the hands of a mighty man. You know, I think about an heir in the hand of a mighty man. He's got a, he's got a focus out here and he's got a goal. He's got a target he wants to hit. That's what children are. And they should be like that era. We should labor to... Raise them and guide them, as God's word would say. We need to be established in the old way here in the church. And You know, there's a text found in Psalms 27, verse 11. David said, lead me in a plain path because of my enemies. That's an amazing text. Lead me in a plain path. What that is is a simple path. You know the reason the Lord gave us the church real simple? Just singing, praying, and preaching to help us keep troubles out of church. Every time you find groups that start adding more to what God has given us, it opens up the doors of trouble. 
You know the reason the church doesn't need like youth auxiliaries? I'm going to tell you, I believe in raising youth the right way. I believe it. I believe that we should spend time with youth, teach our kids, spend time with them, raise them up. I tell you what, my kids, I want them to be this good old solid primitive Baptist. That's what I want them to be. You know the reason the Lord didn't give those youth auxiliaries? Because it opens up the door for a lot of trouble. And it's getting worse all the time, brothers and sisters. You know whose idea it was to divide the family? Whose idea was that? Was that the Lord's idea? What the Lord's idea? I remember a man in the Bible, his name was Pharaoh. He wanted to divide the family. He wanted the men only to go out where he could keep the kids and the women there, get them all divided, because he knew I could overthrow them if I could get them divided. See, it was not the Lord's plan. It was not the Lord's idea. It was not the Lord's will for the family to be divided. It was devils. Because he knew if I could divide the family... I can overthrow them. You know, we've got enough in this world dividing the family already. Aren't you glad that we have a place to go to church where you can have the family together? I told someone a few weeks ago that came into the church house. It was a man and his wife and had his kids. I said, there's nothing more beautiful for me to see in the house of God than a man and his wife coming in the back door with his kids and the man and his wife being concerned about the children enough to to consider what's being taught to them at the house of God. we got enough dividing us already. Thank God he gave us the church to keep us together. And also that prevents a lot of trouble by just keeping it simple. Elder Sam Bryant said that one time. He said, the Lord gave us the church the way it is to keep out a lot of trouble. And amen to that. God, lead me in a plain path because of my enemy. Having trouble in our household, we will be established in our household. Where do we go? We go back to something old. Go back to God's old way. And that old way will work every time. A man being a man. A woman being a woman. And kids being kids. It work every time. God knows how to make it work. The next gate you run into in verse 13 is the valley gate. And here this valley gate reminds us that we have to be established in how to face the battles of life. I'm going to tell you, if you start with the foundation. You begin to build up in our purpose as a disciple. You understand the importance of these old ways of God. You're going to have some valleys in life. And how we handle the valleys in life has a lot to do with us having an established life. And if we don't have an established life, first trouble we're into is, oh, it's all over. I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm wiped out. You know, give it up. What's the use in going forward? I mean, have you ever got down and out and got like that? <laughs> I don't even know why I go forward. Don't even know why I try. You know, just give it up. I mean, it happens. You know what? I want, I want an established life in the Lord so when the valleys do come that I, I can face those valleys. I can face them with a smile. You know, I remember years ago, I had a buddy of mine. He wanted me to go to Six Flags with him. We was in school in near Tech. Now, I went to Six Flags when I was little, but Mama didn't let me ride on all those rides. So here I was at near Tech, and he said, hey, let's go down here to Six Flags. It's been a long time since I've been on a roller coaster. And I'm going to tell you, <laughs> That was a wake-up call for me. It was ups and downs. But I learned, you know, that down is coming, and I can set up myself in a better way for that down to be able to handle it to get back up on that next hill. And it didn't take me too long. I learned, you know, how to, how to get myself ready for it. You know, being established in the Lord to get us ready for the valleys that is life and the troubles of life. So when the storms do come, we can face those storms with strength. Verse 14, the next gate we run into is, is, is the dung gate. And I'm going to tell you, this is something we need to be established. We're in the south part of the walls now. We need to be established in this, what the world is really worth. What the world is really worth is nothing but a dunk hill. When I say the world, I'm not talking about the planet that God made. 
I'm talking about the worldly opinion, ungodly opinions that exist in this world is nothing but dumb. You know, I've come to a place in my life, people's opinion in the world just, just doesn't matter to me anymore. And somebody came to me and said, you know, that old church you're going to over there, Brother Ronnie, I don't know how it's going to go on like it is. I says, all right, you know. I heard a story one time about a man in Mississippi. He couldn't stand the primitive Baptist. I mean, he had some kind of grudge in his heart against him. They said he got up and preached a funeral one time, and he said, I'm looking forward to the day that I can preach the last funeral of the last primitive Baptist in Mississippi. He said that. I can tell you the guy's name that said it. You know what happened? He died. And there's two primitive Baptist preachers preached his funeral. That's what happened. See, that man's opinion shouldn't mean nothing. You know, some people are like, oh, my goodness. You know what he said about it? It doesn't matter. What matters is us being close to the Lord and following the Lord. And we finally come to this conclusion. You know, this world is nothing but dunghill. It's all right. This world stinks. You remember I preached a couple weeks ago about the world stinking? This world stinks. This opinion stinks. This idea stinks. You know what doesn't stink? The incense of the Lord. That doesn't stink. It's always sweet and it's always good. And when we get established in that, that if it doesn't say it in the Word of God, if we don't get it from the Lord, it's not any good. When we get established in that, I'm going to tell you that things in this life become a whole lot easier for us. The next gate, verse 15, is the fountain gate. Now, can you just see someone that comes there to the south and they see the dung gate here to the right and the fountain gate here to the left? Oh, they got it. Hey, this is a lot better gate to be standing at than this gate because they understand the value of the things of the Lord. He is the fountain of life. See, now I know this world doesn't have, really have anything they can help me with. I don't really need the world's opinion. I don't need the world's help. The Bible says love not the world. Don't be the friend of the world. Don't be conformed to the world. But I look over here and I see this fountain gate. This is what I need to be established in. And my fellowship with the Lord. And this fountain gate is where I would like to spend more time and be established in where I can find my strength in life. The next gate, verse 26, is the water gate. And notice that water gate didn't need any repair. It was fine. You know, that water gate reminds me of the water of the Word. And let's be established in God's Word being perfect. God's Word being without flaw. God's Word being that that He's preserved for us as English-speaking people, the King James Bible. It's also being under attack. Don't you think we need to be established on what the Bible is and who it was given to and what it's for? Next gate, verse 28, is the horse gate. Horse is an emblem of strength in the Bible. And we know where to be strengthened as we go through this fight. The next gate is the east gate, more than likely the gate that Jesus came through when he came into Jerusalem to be crucified. And then finally we got the gate Mifkad. You can tell I'm going through these fast because my time is up. Next gate is gate Mifkad. What's the Mifkad? What does that mean? In verse 31, Mifkad, the word means to be to, to muster or to gather together. Now put this together. You got sheep, sheep gate at the end, Mifkad, east gate. East gate's the gate Jesus come through. Mifkad means to muster or gather together, and then it all ends back up with the sheep gate. This is talking about us being established in the second coming of the Lord. Wow, that's something good to be established in, isn't it? Us being established in the second coming of the Lord and Him coming back as lightning would come from the east to the west and us being gathered together unto Him. Remember the Apostle Paul used those words in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Us being established in that. Do you realize how that helps us in our troubles and trials in this life? What helps us more than anything facing the troubles and trials in this life? You know what helps me when I, when I preach a funeral? 
You know, funerals are sad. I'm glad to do whatever any family would want me to do for them, but I get sad at funerals. I'm, I'm looking forward to the last funeral that, I, that I'm asked to preach. You know what that'll be? Either when I die or when the Lord comes back. You know who's going to put the funeral companies out of business? The Lord. He's going to put them out of business when he comes back. And you know, when he comes back, we're all going to be happy. We're all going to be satisfied. It's going to be joyous of us, us all being together in heaven in this wonderful and beautiful place forever and ever and him coming back not to bring us back to this earth but to take us home to that place that he built for us from the foundation of the world and when i think about that and us being together wow does that help me in being established to face the troubles of this life you know what no matter what trouble i have i know it's just temporary it's just a little while if i go to the doctor the doctor tells me you've got you've got a serious disease brother right and you're gonna get really sick from this I can say, well, it's all right, you know, it's just, it's just a little while. You know, last Saturday I was on that airplane, and, and they said, uh, we got a technical problem with the airplane. You know, they're about to take off, and they put on the brakes. I was like, ooh, you know, I'd never had that happen. And I thought, well, something's wrong with the airplane. And then the, you know, the pilot came on, hey, we've got some, I think he said technical, not mechanical, because I think if he had said mechanical, there'd probably be people trying to look through the doors. <laughs> we got a technical problem with the airplane, but, I mean, we knew something was wrong. There's people just flooding at the front door. You know, hey, I want off this plane. I want off this plane. I want to get rescheduled. I want to get this. I was just sitting there, and, you know, we had a man come to me. He was on the plane. He said, uh, Mr. Lottermilk, are you okay? I said, hey, man, I'm just trying to get home. It's going to be all right. I said, I'll either get home to North Carolina, or I'm going to go home to heaven. It's, it's going to be okay either way. I said, uh, just let me know when you're ready to take off. He said, that's a great attitude to have. I said, I don't know about a great attitude. I said, but I'm just looking forward to being home, home. Either here in North Carolina, here at the church, for the home that Jesus made for me. Jesus made a home for me in heaven. I'm looking forward to being there and just me focusing on that. You know, makes all things in this life a lot easier to bear. You know, David said, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. And if it had not been for the fact that I could be established and Jesus coming back and us being gathered together in the clouds and being with him in heaven... I believe I'd just give up on life. But because of that, it helps me take one more step in his service. May God richly bless you.